Pray with me. God, I pray that on this Pentecost Sunday, when we celebrate, commemorate, remember, live into the truth that you sent your spirit into our hearts, that your spirit would come again and fill us, that you would capture our mind's imagination, more importantly, you would capture our hearts by the reading, by the teaching of your word, even the story of Jacob and Joseph. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Well, as a preacher, when you've got to cover five chapters, you have to make some decisions. And I think the best way to cover these chapters is to pan out and to look at the big picture. And the image I want to use is that we are like flying in a plane at 30,000 feet, and you're looking out the window, and you're seeing these big themes. You're not seeing the details so much. There's a ton of interesting details in these passages. Even just reading it, I was like, I wish I was going to talk about that. Uh, But nonetheless, we're going to look at the big picture. And there's two things I want us to see primarily in these chapters. The first is this, the Lord God is sovereign. And the second, that's more theological. And then more existentially, secondly, life with God is a pilgrimage, or said another way, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is sovereign, and the Lord is my shepherd. But before I dive in, and in many ways to get us into this story, I want to tell you the story of a friend of mine, a real-life hero, whose life is animated by these truths, that the Lord is her shepherd, And the Lord is sovereign. Martha Brown, we are not related, but she is family. And I love Martha. Martha was the housekeeper in my home growing up. And until she could not work, she worked for and with my parents. Today, Martha is 86 years old. Most of the times that I talk to her, I laugh. She is one of the funniest people I know. She's one of these people that has a glint in her eye. Always joyful. I always laugh. Sometimes, as I did this week, I cried. And her joy and even her hilarity might surprise you if you just met her and only knew a little bit of her story. Because if you knew her story deep, it would be shocking to you that she is joyful, that she is happy. Martha has worked harder and seen more suffering than most any person I know. She is one of 13 children children of a sharecropper in East Texas. She was telling me stories this week of picking cotton at ages 8, 9, and 10. And she said, Reverend, she calls me Reverend now, the only person on the planet that calls me Reverend. She said, Reverend, you wouldn't last a week. She's true. I told her I wouldn't last a day. She's had tough marriages. Four years ago, she lost her beloved son, who was a best friend to her, I thought it would take her. I thought it would kill her. All 12 of her siblings have died. All 12 of them. She's the last of 13. She's faced arthritis, cancer multiple times, old age. She told me this week that loneliness and pain are her biggest struggles day to day. There's also deep trauma from her past. Most vividly, when she was a very little girl, her 10-year-old brother was murdered by the man who owned their land. The man felt so guilty that he came and asked forgiveness, but he was never punished. People respond differently to a trauma like that. Martha's mother was able to forgive the man and live a healthy and whole life. Martha's dad despaired. He had been unable to protect his son. 
and he basically drank himself to an early death. Whenever I think about race relations in our country, I think that I know someone, I love someone who is alive today, whose sibling was murdered because of the color of his skin. And the man who did it faced no legal consequences. But here's the deal. Despite all of that, Martha has lived one of the most beautiful, loving lives that I know. To my knowledge, she has never stepped foot out of the state of Texas. I don't think even on vacation. I've invited her to come visit. Won't do it. I don't think she's ever stepped foot out of the state of Texas. And yet her life has been full and huge. She loves fiercely. She loved me and my two siblings. The three of us all keep in touch with her. My parents still see her regularly. She loves to tease my dad. She loves her children, her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren. She has 40, count them, 40 great-grandchildren. Her eldest great-grandchild graduated high school this past Wednesday in Texas. Imagine that, 40, and you got one, a great-grandchild graduating from high school. To my knowledge, she's at least raised two different children who are not her biological children. Children that she just saw in her apartment complex that had no one caring for them, no one loving them. And she, it wasn't foster care. It wasn't safe families, great programs. She just saw somebody in need, somebody without a mama. And she took them in. I won't even say their names, but I know these women. She took them in and raised them as her own. I love my sister says of Martha that Martha's voicemails are the only ones she saves. Martha's a hero, a life of love, no bitterness, very little regret, never conquered by despair. She learned to forgive, she learned to trust, she learned to love. And she also learned to live out the very specific life that God called her to, that God laid out for her. Because no matter what was happening, Martha got out of bed every morning, she went to work, and she got busy loving the people that came into her path. Which is to say, Martha learned to live by these two truths. That God is sovereign and the Lord is my shepherd. God is sovereign and the Lord is my shepherd. It is the only thing. I, when I try to think what explains a life like Martha's, the only thing is that God is sovereign and the Lord is her shepherd. So that's what I want to talk about today in these chapters in Genesis. God is sovereign, and the Lord God is our shepherd, and life with him is a pilgrimage. First, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. This is the theological point, and it's actually very important to understand. Now, God's sovereignty means he is in control. It means that he has a plan. Uh, and we don't always know the details. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The revealed things belong to us and to our children. God's word belongs to us. That's, it's revealed to us. But the secret things, God's plans, they belong to the Lord. And sometimes, though, God pulls back the curtain and allows us to see a little bit of his plan. So stay with me for these next few minutes because this is actually immensely important. Because we're actually going from 30,000 feet up to 60,000 feet. Because I want you to see what the book of Genesis is about. And at some level what all the Bible is about. And how this one little story is integrated into it. And actually how your story is integrated into this story. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but you can because you already have your Bibles open. 
Genesis chapter 1, God made human beings. And he says to our first parents, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Go out and fill the earth and have dominion over the earth. That's Genesis 1. Two chapters later in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world through the sin of our first parents. But after sin has entered the world, God says to, uh, that through the offspring of our first mother, through Eve, through her offspring, that evil and Satan will be crushed. That's Genesis 3.15. So what it's saying, Genesis 3.15, it's really important for her offspring to be protected. The offspring of the woman. Genesis 12 God speaks to a man called Abram, which you know him as Abraham. He's actually Joseph's great-grandfather and Jacob's grandfather, and he is of the line of Eve. He is in that lineage of Eve, Eve's offspring. And God says to that man in Genesis 12, Abraham, go from your country. I will make you great. I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and through you all nations will be blessed. Okay, that's Jacob's grandfather, Joseph's great-grandfather. And then three times in the story of Jacob, actually four, the one we'll look at this morning is the fourth. Three times in the story of Jacob, God speaks to Jacob and he basically speaks that same word to him. I will make you into a great nation. I will bring blessing upon the whole earth through you. And so it's no surprise, words we just read, but look with me again. Chapter 46, verse 2, God speaks again to Jacob and he says this. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and he said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then God said, I am the God, God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And so Jacob goes. He goes to Egypt. Now, significantly, this doesn't seem significant, but it's super important. They don't settle in the mainland of Egypt, okay? You might think the people of Israel went to Egypt. They did go to Egypt, but they went to kind of a state within a state, a place called Goshen. This is super important. Verse chapter 46, verse 33. If you're sticking with me, the point will be made in just a second. So here in chapter 46, uh, verse 33, Joseph is telling his brothers how to interact with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he says this, when Pharaoh calls to you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even till now, both we and our fathers. And he says this, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. You see, the people of Israel are called out of Canaan to go to Egypt, but they are called to live separately in this place called Goshen. It's like a state within Egypt, okay? So what's happening is here is in going to Egypt, the family is first of all protected from a physical famine. The sons of Jacob do not die of starvation. They are protected, which is to say the offspring of Eve, the, off, the mother of the Messiah, the grandmother of the Messiah, the offspring is protected. And it's not just that the seed is protected, but also in going to Egypt and being separated from the Egyptians in Goshen, this is a people who will be formed. They will live together in functionally what is a ghetto, segregated from the Egyptians. They will live by themselves. Because there's a lot of bad things that can happen in ghettos. It happens that this ghetto is a good ghetto with, with a very uh, fruitful land. But this also happens in ghettos. There's a formation and a strengthening of people. This is the Valley Forge experience of the people of Israel. This is the Warsaw ghetto of the 20th century Jews. Because in this ghetto, in Goshen, God forms a nation. Because had Jacob and his sons stayed in Israel, stayed in Canaan... We see already his sons would have wandered off. 
They would have left the living God behind. They would have intermarried with the other nations. And so God calls them out of Israel. And he puts them in this ghetto in Egypt so that he can form a nation. Theologically, this is the point of the Joseph story. This is the point of Genesis. This, in fact, is the point of the whole Bible. God is forming a nation, his people. And in so doing, he is preserving the offspring of the Messiah so that the Messiah can come. Now, there's some existential stuff that will hit your heart a little bit more that we'll learn from. But ultimately, this story is about this. God is allowing all this suffering. And let's put it in the context of Joseph. God allows Joseph to be sold into slavery He allows Joseph to be enslaved. He allows Joseph to be imprisoned, to experience famine, so that the seed of the woman can be preserved, so that the Messiah can come, so that the nation can be formed. We're going to see in just a moment, but I'll go ahead and tell you, because Messiah does not even come through Joseph's line. You think Joseph would go through all this suffering so that, the, that the Jesus would come through Joseph, but it's not through Joseph. Joseph is sent ahead to suffer terribly so that the Messiah can come through the line of Judah, who, oh, by the way, is the brother who suggested selling him into slavery. Joseph, actually, his name kind of fades from the pages of Scripture. Joseph doesn't even get to be one of the 12 tribes. His sons do. The 12 tribes of Israel, you won't find Joseph's name. It's not there. Which is to say that God raised Joseph up, which is a better way of saying that actually God sent Joseph down into a land of suffering so that God's people might be saved. And what I want to say to us this morning about God's sovereignty is that there is a hole in the universe. There's a hole in God's story that only you can fill. Joseph is the only person who could fill this story. The real hero in the story turns out to be Judah, through whom will come the Messiah. His great, 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 great grandson is Jesus. Joseph plays this side story, but it is the only one he could play. God gave it to him. God is sovereign, and he is accomplishing his purposes. And friends, I don't know where you are, but you need to know that your story matters. Your story matters. In fact, your story is the only one that, you're the only person that has that story. And you have to take what God has given you to be faithful. You may not be the star like Judah. You may be called to be the one like Joseph who suffers so that God's plan goes forward. So the fact that God is sovereign, it gives us confidence. But we need something more than confidence. We need comfort, which leads us to the second thing. Not only is the Lord God sovereign, but the Lord is our shepherd. The Lord is our shepherd. Or said another way, life with God is a pilgrimage. What does it look like to be a pilgrimage? What I mean by this is life with God, your life is not a straight line. Your life is not a straight line. Your life is filled with twists and turns, suffering and joy, tragedy and triumph. I heard uh, Charlie Dates preach on the story of Joseph recently from the south side of Chicago. And he says this, God is taking you somewhere. God is taking you somewhere. He's taking you somewhere. And there is no direct route. There is no direct route. There's going to be detours. There's going to be suffering. And there's going to be a lack of information. You will not be able to see the way forward. And here's the reason why. 
If God gave you all the information of what you're going to face, you'd never go. You'd never do it. Because the pain required to become the person God would have you become is too great to bear if you knew it in advance. If you knew what was going to happen, if you knew the pain and suffering that were in your future, you'd never do it. God withholds the information to accomplish his purposes. And he asks him to trust him as his shepherd. Let's first consider Joseph. Had Joseph known that he would be betrayed, sold into slavery, thrown into prison, exiled from his family for 20 years, he wouldn't have submitted. He wouldn't have gone out that day in Genesis 37 to find his brothers. But God took him through all that so that he could be lifted up to be the number two person in Egypt, from the pit to the prison to the palace. Not in a million years would he have guessed his life. And had he known it, he would have run from it. That's Joseph. What about Jacob? What about Jacob? Imagine, for 20 years he thinks his son has been dead. For 20 years he thinks his beloved son has been dead. But then he finds that he has a heart. It appears he almost has a heart attack. I'm not going to go through this, but in chapter 45 he almost has a heart attack. when He doesn't believe his sons. But he eventually believes them when he sees all the carts from Pharaoh and he moves to Egypt. If you'll skip with me through the passages, chapter 46, Jacob is reunited with his dead son, Joseph. In chapter 47, one of my favorite passages, uh, Jacob is an old man, meets Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world. And he doesn't bow before Pharaoh. He actually puts out his hand and he blesses Pharaoh. I love that passage. Also in chapter 47, Jacob endures a famine. And then in chapter 48, in chapter 48, Jacob meets his grandsons. Born to his son Joseph in Egypt. Turn with me to page 42 in the Bible, in your pew Bible. Uh, Genesis chapter 48, verse 15. Genesis chapter 48, verse 15. The picture here is Jacob, the grandfather, is with Joseph, his son, and with Joseph's two young sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they are sitting, and he is holding them on his lap. What a beautiful picture. Right, holding the grandsons of the son he thought was dead for 20 years. He didn't even know these children existed. And now he gets to hold his grandchildren. And this is what he says in verse 15. The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. God has been my shepherd. Now, if you remember anything about the story of Jacob, and I know some of you won't hear in the fall, and you might not know this story, but it took Jacob a long while to learn that God was his shepherd. When we first met Jacob many years ago, and back in the fall in our case, Jacob was a deceiving, lying, conniving, conniving mess of a human being. He did not trust God as his shepherd. He certainly did not view him as his shepherd. When we first meet Jacob, he's always trying to control his life. And control all the situations around him. Know anybody like this? Maybe they're in the mirror. <laughs> Trying to control everything. But finally at the end of his life, he can say, God is my shepherd. And he can actually say, and looking back, I can see that God has been my shepherd. And friends, this is a powerful evocation of what will become years after this, but in the past to us, the most beloved of the Psalms, the 23rd Psalm. Jacob says here is that God has been my shepherd. And I hope you know Psalm 23. Because it says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's the 23rd Psalm. And Jacob is finally getting the memo. The Lord is my shepherd. And he leads us to green pastures and still waters. But our shepherd also leads us by the hand through the valley of the shadow of death. He leads us to all these different places. I want you to think with me right now. What are the circumstances, the past circumstances that brought you to your seat right here, where you are right now? What brought you to this place? You were born at a certain time in a certain geography to certain parents. You met a spouse at a certain place in your life and you're married to them and you now have children with them. God has been your shepherd. The Lord is your shepherd. He is leading you wherever you are right now. Let's get a little more specific and granular. In our story here in Genesis, the massive event is a famine. Massively displacing this famine in Genesis. No one saw it coming and it turned the fruit basket of life upside down. This famine did. We have an event a little bit like that, maybe a smaller recently. In our recent memory, it's called a global pandemic. No one saw it coming, and it turned the basket of so many of our lives upside down. How different is your life from March 1st, 2020? Have you moved? Maybe you haven't moved. Maybe you're sitting in the same seat you were sitting in March of 2020, but the person next to you, I can almost guarantee, is different. They have moved. Maybe you lost a loved one. Maybe you lost a relationship over the politics. Our lives were turned upside down. No one would have predicted on March 1st of 2020. Life is a pilgrimage with all kinds of unexpected twists and turns. And the Lord is our shepherd. He is our shepherd. We do not know the way, but he does. We don't know what's ahead of us. We don't know what's ahead of us. Maybe there's another pandemic. Maybe there's a global recession. Maybe there's a civil war. Maybe there is some sort of radical persecution against Christians. Maybe artificial intelligence destroys us all. Maybe you win the lottery. Maybe your daughter wins Wimbledon. Maybe you face a deadly cancer diagnosis. Maybe you're betrayed by someone you love. You do not know the way. But we know two things. We know two things, and Jacob finally learned to love these things and know these things. And the first thing is, we know our guide. We know our shepherd. As the great hymn says, we do not know the way, but oh, we know the guide. He is our shepherd. Are you in green pastures right now? Are you beside still waters? Remember that the Lord has led you to that place. Maybe you're in the valley of the shadow of death. Maybe it's physical death. Maybe you are sick. Maybe you're on the verge of a divorce. Your marriage has gotten so bad. Maybe you are removed from a child or from a parent. A relationship has been broken. You're in the valley of the shadow of death. Remember, the Lord is your shepherd. You don't know the way. I don't know what tomorrow holds for you. But I do know the Lord is our shepherd. 
So the first thing we know is our guide, but the second thing we know is our end. We know the end of the story. Uh, on Tuesday, Alice and I are getting on a plane to fly to New York City uh, for a pastors and spouses conference. And now to get to New York City on a plane, uh, you got to know two things. you got to trust two things. One, you got to trust your guide. We call that the guy with the hat and the things on his, you know, the pilot, right? But you also got to know the destination, right? I don't know how he's going to take us. He or she's going to take us. Maybe he's going to fly over the Great Lakes. Maybe he's going to fly over Manhattan. Maybe he's going to fly over Long Island. I don't know. But I know where we're headed, and I know the guide, the pilot. And on our pilgrimage with God as our shepherd, we know our guide, but we also know where we are headed, which is to say salvation is coming. Salvation is coming. God has brought this family of Jacob to Egypt to protect them, to forge them. And through them, he will come the Messiah. And it won't be Joseph's line, though. It'll be Judah's. Turn with me to Genesis 49. Okay, Genesis 49. This will be the last scripture we read. And I won't read much of it. But in Genesis 49, Jacob, the patriarch... These are his last will and testament. He gathers his 12 sons around him with the grandchildren. And he speaks a word over each of his sons that is a prophetic word about the way that they will live in the years to come. But I want to call your attention to verse 8 and following when he speaks to Judah. Remember, the whole story is about protecting the seed, the seed of the Messiah. Chapter 49, verse 8. And we're going to skip through here real quickly. Judah, your brothers, shall praise you. And then skip down to verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Remember, Joseph, excuse me, Jacob is speaking to his children, to Judah at this point. And he says, until tribute comes to Judah, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And then verse 11. Judah will bind his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. You see, Jacob is speaking of the end of the story. He is speaking of the Messiah, the coming Messiah. He's not talking about Judah, but who's Judah's great-great-grandson will be. Jesus, the Messiah. When he says, your brothers shall praise you, and we praise Jesus. The donkey's cult points forward to when Jesus goes into Jerusalem at his triumphal entry. And the washing and wine points forward to Jesus' death when he is so bloody. You see, friends, the words of Jacob in Genesis 49 are looking forward to the coming of Jesus over a thousand years later. And Jesus does come, and he comes through the line of Judah. People would bow to him in worship. He would ride on the foal of a donkey, and he would be washed in garments of blood. But here's the thing about Jesus Jesus knew the guide, and he knew the end, but Jesus also knew the way. You and I, we don't know what's in front of us. We don't know where our shepherd's going to take us. But Jesus, he did know what was before him. He did know what was coming, the suffering, the agony. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the cross. And so Jacob and Joseph, they know the end. They know their guide, and they know their end. Now, we live after all that has happened, after Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. In fact, we live after Pentecost, as I was speaking to the children, when Jesus spent his spirit to dwell in the lives of believers. And what Pentecost means is that we have a taste of the fullness, but not the fullness. 
we are still looking towards the end, the salvation that is coming. To the salvation that is coming. I was reminded this week of one of my favorite novels. It's actually more of a novella. It's quite short. It's Cormac McCarthy's The Road. If you've read The Road by Cormac McCarthy. And it's a story of a father and a son. I read it before I had children. I think it would tear me up now having a son. Uh, but it's a story of a father and a son in a post-apocalyptic world. And they're on this road and they are fleeing starvation. They are fleeing cold. They're literally fleeing cannibals. And at one point, after they've come through all that, the cold, the cannibals, the starvation, this terrible bleak uh, uh, landscape, the son says to the father, Dad, what's the bravest thing you ever did? And the father said, I got up this morning. I got up this morning and faced the day. Friends, God is sovereign and the Lord is your shepherd. So we can get up every day and face the day knowing those two things and forging a life like my friend Martha forged her life, a life of fullness, a life of love, a life of giving. Take these two truths with you. God is sovereign and the Lord is your shepherd, our shepherd. Let me pray. God, we thank you for Stories like this that remind us of our own, the suffering, the joy, the triumph, and the trials. We thank you, God, that you are our God, that you are sovereign, and you are our shepherd. For Christ's sake we pray.